Behold! The sword of power. Excalibur. Welcome to the Oh Gosh, Oh Golly, Oh Wow podcast, the podcast where we talk about the Marvel comic series Excalibur and nothing but Excalibur every week for 126 plus weeks. This week, we are back in England and the wider reaches of the cosmos in Excalibur 61, Truth and Consequence, in which Rachel is back, sort of, along with our plot momentum and everyone's favorite Excalibur artist, not to be overshadowed by the return of fan favorite character Micromax. Am I being sarcastic? I will never tell. Excalibur 61 was originally published in January 1993, and the creative team is Alan Davis on writing and pencils, Mark Farmer on inks, Glynis Oliver on colors, Chris Eliopoulos on letters, and Terry Cavanaugh on editing. Oh, 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 wait a minute. Wait a minute, Maurice. What were you just saying? Into the devil. Is that the expression? <laughs> WWE Hall of Famer that glamours on herself, Beth Phoenix, is here. Phoenix and she will appear. So now Maurice has her chance. Welcome back for another week of exploring the cosmos and the inner workings of our hearts. And boy, is it ever nice to have Alan Davis back. Just really, really appreciating it and overshadowing my experience <laughs> of this comic a lot. But we will talk about that. Before we can get to gushing about Davis and the sort of return of Rachel, let's do some intros. I am Dr. Anna Bapard. I write about comics and representation and gender and sexuality in lots of places, including Comics XF, where I am currently editing a weekly feature called Our Best X-Men Stories, which I think is pretty great. And you should definitely check it out. I am also, as always, Kurt Wagner's unofficial PR manager, and in that capacity, I would encourage him to get more creative with Cerise's light powers. I bet there's more interesting stuff you can do <laughs> with them besides making suits of armor to fight Brian, but, you know, what do I know? I am joined, as always, by Mav. Please reignite your credentials. I'm actually not Mav. I'm an extra-dimensional force inhabiting Mav's body <laughs> and just being super judgmental about everything that everyone else does. Um, <laughs> but that said, Mav is a scholar of pop culture and literature and movies and TV and comics and stuff like that on this and another podcast called Vox Popcast. And he's on vacation for the summer while I am taking over his body. And I'm going to stop this bit now because, again, yeah. it would be it would be really hard to do for the entire show. And also, I don't want to pick up too much time. I am like so rid and this is going to sound like a joke i am ridiculously excited about our guest today so i'm done <laughs> <laughs> i mean i will say i don't want to embarrass our guest but when they reached out to us i floated it to mav and he was like i want to talk to this guest more than i want anything in the entire anything world. else on the show no. <laughs> <laughs> like, there's no like nothing else matters <laughs> like, this is, um... Anyway, we will introduce our guest in a moment, but first, Andrew, remind us of your pursuits. Hello, I'm Dr. J. Andrew DeMann. 
I am a lecturer at St. Jerome's University and project lead for the Claremont Run, uh, a big social media project on Chris Claremont's X-Men operating through Twitter. Unfortunately, I've recently learned that each tweet I write consumes the life energy of one unborn soul. It's a small price to pay to help support Elon Musk. Oh, wow. oh God. Oh, wow. That was already a lot there, and then it took a turn. It just got real dark. <laughs> Thank you, Andrew. The team is joined this week by a guest we're so excited to have with us, someone who we have previously encountered in the letters page of Sword Strokes. The pod is overjoyed to welcome Jason Gray. Welcome, Jason. Uh, hi. Nice to be here. Um, I cannot explain to you the face that I was making while you're saying that I am the most anticipated person. <laughs> with, with, with what? Not even close. No Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, no pressure. But like, but one that is what Anna said is is one hundred percent correct. Um, when when you wrote her and she, she wrote the rest of us and it says, "Do we want to have a person from the letters column?" And she pointed us at your letters, and I'm like, "Yes." More than anything else, this is <laughs> like no, like more than any other guest we've ever had. I am excited. So you are actually in the book as a write-in letter. <laughs> That's amazing, and I have so many questions. Um, so hi. <laughs> hi. <laughs> I told you. Yeah, I mean, we're all so interested in sort of histories of fandom and stuff. And it's exciting for us to have that connection. And I mean, for you to (laughs) know that we read, you know, a letter on the air, and then to actually find that person that's super special. I am very grateful you didn't read it on the air, because I wrote that when I was 14, 15. (laughs) (laughs) Every time I, I bring this up, I'm like, Oh yeah, I remember this. Let me go read. Ooh, ooh, I was very much a teenager. (laughs) Well, I will introduce you and we will get to talking about it a little bit. So once famous for wholly unexpected things like having his letter printed in Excalibur 51 in reference to the creation of a fan club called Phoenix Force, Jason returned to his mountain lair and has spent the last few decades existing along the outskirts of fandom, waiting for the day when they would have need of him once again. More seriously, Jason has spent over 15 years writing monthly X-Books reviews, followed by a more general comics review column for the fan culture magazine Collector Times Online. Since 2009, he's worked at his own site, discovering and reviewing obscure, strange, and frequently bad horror movies at Triscadelophiles. He has recently brought his knowledge and suffering to the world of podcasting with a podcast called The Blood Stream. Now, Jason, we definitely want to talk about the fan club and Rachel and all of these good things, but let's start at the beginning. Let's start with your origin story. When did you first discover comics? When did you first fall in love with them? I started reading at a very young age of three. Amazing. Um, yeah, so my parents say, however much you want to put into that. <laughs> um, but books have always been a part of my life, and I know Mav will be able to relate to this. The three packs you could get in drugstores, my parents loved to get them for me to basically keep me quiet in the back seat. <laughs> yep. <laughs> that's and... ba- That's very similar to how I started reading comics, yes. Yep. So... There was always books in my life, and my parents were like, if he wants to spend money on something, at least he's reading and not drugs or, or yeah. other stuff. He's sitting in the corner reading. He's happy. He's quiet. We love it. They were always more than happy to support my reading habit. And so later on, I moved to the middle of nowhere in the country where there was even less to do, and I didn't have TV for a long time outside of what we could pick up on Antenna. So again, it was just consuming books because that's what I could get my hands on. And one of the first comics I remember spending my own money on is Official Handbook of the Marvel Universe Deluxe Edition number 11. 
which explains a lot about me, I think. It's the Spider-Man issue. I, I literally missed the Phoenix issue by one. <laughs> I have it now. <laughs> In multiple forms. And from there, it was just picking up whatever on the, the rack at drugstores or uh, lo the local store that looked cool. The first issue of X-Men I got was issue 208, the issue after Logan tries to stop... Uh, Rachel from killing Celine. So literally the first issue of X-Men I read is Rachel stumbling through a park and disappearing off to Mojo World. Oh my god, you're so star-crossed. <laughs> and from there, eventually I found the comic store, but uh, before then, you know, I would get issues of classic X-Men, and the first of that was the reprint of 100 with the John Bolton backup where they kind of revealed the deal between the Phoenix Force and Jean Grey and yes. ended with that that beautiful splash page of Jean Grey as the Phoenix over the, the shuttle. And that mental image just stuck with me and... I was able to piece together that this person and Rachel were the same person and making that connection with the, the big universe that comics are just kind of slowly drew me in and I cannot explain exactly why I'm into the Phoenix, but it just always been part of my life as far back as all that. And since most of the TV I watched was PBS, which carried a ton of British programming from Britcoms, Red Dwarf, uh, Doctor Who, mm. it was pretty much primed for me to get into Excalibur, which I mm. didn't do until issue 42. Oh, uh, yeah. part, of, wow. part of that was money and just I was really getting into the whole uh, uh, mutant renaissance at that point, which also has Claremont leaving. But issue 42 was my first comic. And I very quickly got all the back issues, wrote the letter, and 30 years later, here we are. <laughs> well, I want to ask you specifically about the fan club, and maybe it's a story and maybe it's not a story, but so what we're referring to is that you wrote in with the letters to the letters column, you know, proposing that people write you at the Phoenix Force fan club. So I'm curious, did anybody write you? I got somewhere between a dozen to two dozen letters. Oh, that's pretty good. Yeah. Not a great showing, but not bad at all either. That's and efficient starter um, podcast numbers. That's pretty good. I like that. Yeah. <laughs> and being a teenager who really just wanted to jump on the bandwagon of having a fan club, being a Phoenix fan, and having the great name of Phoenix Force. <laughs> I got the ball rolling, but then being a teenager and I, I was probably 16 or so at this point, once letters started rolling in, I really kind of dropped the ball. I wrote back to a few people. I designed a membership card, which I oh. still have the art for. I'll throw that in at you at some point. Yes, please. I scoured my house for that over the weekend. Thank you. <laughs> I had a photo of it beforehand from a few years ago, but I kind of wanted to just have it in my hands. Yes. To say, yes, it is still real. Um, and is it too late to join? <laughs> um, funny story that. You got three um, right here. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I've always kind of thought of bringing it back up, but at this point, <laughs> fan clubs are so... You have fan sites on the web. I had a mm -hmm. early Rachel Summers fan site on GeoCities that was there until that one out. Yes. Hi, yes, I've been online since 1995. <laughs> <laughs> so have we all. <laughs> I still want to point out how old I am, but yes. <laughs> Loyal I'm not far now. off. Yeah. I started using the internet in 1990. That is. <laughs> <laughs> oh, 
Oh, right. So I wrote back to a few people. I designed the membership card, and it never really went anywhere because teenagers getting distracted with other things. And I've always felt bad about that, but it was right on the cusp of when the internet took off, and Mm. we had a giant fan club that was slowly growing. A teenager (laughs) wanted to start a thing and got distracted. (laughs) (laughs) We've all been there. I love that. I like I it made me want to go on like a sleuthing quest to find like all the operators of the fan clubs that were listed in sword strokes. But then I was like, no, wait, is that cool or totally creepy? Because that would be stalking people. And it's probably not a good idea. <laughs> but I still well, think it's so much such kismet that you found us. Yeah, I, well, I always wonder it's a very different time when you know, you, you published I mean, I guess cause it's your address, but your parents address, you know, <laughs> in a yeah. international magazine, which is like just sort of a different kind of time i guess you don't want to do that right today. what's kind of do you have any perspective on like to your mind how have things changed as sort of fandom has moved out of something like fan clubs that we had sort of pre-internet into into the internet age i mean you alluded to it before that things have kind of changed with that shift you know what have you kind of observed with that shift being sort of in and out of fandom over the years oh it's so much easier to connect to connect with people now I mean, yeah. look at what we're doing right now. Yeah. This was not possible 15, 20 years ago. Yeah. Just the nature of moving from handwritten letters to email to Twitter and now this. There is the dark side to it where there's a lot more voices and a lot <laughs> more opinions and a lot of people who want to be right. Yeah. That's actually an interesting question. I wonder, like, how did you find our show? I mean, do you listen to, like, lots of X-Men podcasts, or was it just it was Excalibur, or was that uh, Well, I have another friend online who is a big Nightcrawler fan who has started mm. posting about the show. Okay. And that's how I found out about it. But here's the funny thing. About 18 months ago, I started thinking, you know what? I should head an Excalibur podcast. Oh, Literally, no. three days later, this person said, hey, check out this Excalibur podcast. I was bitter. I was angry. <laughs> I'm like, and I was like, these kids today, they're out there thinking they know Excalibur. How dare they? I'm not listening to this until I have the time. And I kind of kept my eye on it because they kept mentioning it uh, on Tumblr. And I knew issue 51 was going to come up at some point. And I was wondering, are they ever going to mention uh, the letters columns? I didn't know at the time that you read letters in almost every episode. And so I saw 51 came out. I dipped in. I kind of scrubbed around on it and heard Phoenix Force get mentioned. I'm like, (laughs) I've literally waited 30 years for this moment. Quite literally. (laughs) The cover date. Of issue 51 is June 1992. Now, I know that's like three months predated, but I love the synchronicity of that to when we're recording this. <gasps> Literally 30 years. Oh, my God. Um, oh, my God. I love that. <laughs> and so I went back and started listening to the show. I'm like, oh, no, these people have been reading Excalibur longer than I have. They're not kids. I'm the kid. <laughs> <laughs> I was wasting the game. I'm a fraud. <laughs> Oh, no, not at all. I don't no, have no, a letter in there. <laughs> you have a letter. That's why, again, totally in awe. <laughs> I mean, to be fair, we know the whole reason they printed my letter was because there was a fan club. It was a bit of a game just to get my my, my name in the letters page to have that moment where I can say, look what I did. The fact that we, that we earned your somewhat seal of approval after the initial bout of jealousy means the world to us. <laughs> I love that so much. 
Oh, I love your show so much. I started listening after we decided I was going to be on the show because I'm yeah, like, yeah. well, I didn't listen to the show. And that's when I found out, oh, you guys are doing scholarly works. I'm going to bring the discourse on this show way down. Oh, my <laughs> God, no. I almost said for my intro, I'm not a doctor, but I play one on TV. <laughs> <laughs> well, speaking of discourse, I like want to give you more of a chance to talk about Rachel and and your affection for this character. So let's do that before we get into it a little bit. I mean, it's a huge question, but you know, what are some of the things that draw you to this character? I honestly have never been able to put on why Rachel Summers. Mm-hmm. I, I was drawn to the Phoenix because of the imagery. I love the life, death, and rebirth symbolism and the the symbolism of. Uh, second chances you can always come back and try again and I think I lean more towards Rachel because she was a bit more my age than Jean Grey and it was a little off to the side it wasn't you know the expected oh Jean Grey the the number one x-man so it was kind of my thing that I could kind of glom onto yeah yeah that makes sense I often think about that in terms of how we select our favorite characters you know we need to select a character that we kind of can not own but sort of feel like is accessible to us in a way and it's almost it's a little cliche but I like that at this point uh, well not this point but uh more early Excalibur she was a character still trying to figure out who she was while still being very confident in her persona. Let's dive into our issue summary and then we'll come back and talk about some specific Rachel stuff in this comic. Rachel, is it Rachel? Is it not Rachel? We will definitely talk about that, but let's get into it. I know we've got lots of lovely listeners reading along with the pod. We'd share our light armor any day. But as always, let's start today's occasionally cosmic journey with a plot summary. Excalibur 61 opens in space, where the body of Rachel Summers is gliding through a star field as the Phoenix Force continues to rebuild her mind and body. Suddenly, her eyes open as the Phoenix Force takes control. Phoenix encounters the Devourer of Worlds, Galactus, preparing to dine and tells him he mustn't because it's an inhabited world. Galactus refuses to stop and challenges Phoenix to a fight. Meanwhile, back on Earth, the members of Excalibur are conducting some training exercises in the caves beneath Braddock Manor. Shielded by solid light amour, I mean armor, generated by Cerise. Kurt fights Brian, eventually knocking him clean off his feet with an uppercut. But given Brian's tremendous strength and invulnerability, that shouldn't have happened. A concerned Megan asks Brian what's wrong. He says he hasn't been sleeping well because he remains obsessed with finding Courtney's killer Saturnine, saying nothing else matters. Megan doesn't react well to that turn of phrase. She flies away, and Kurt gives Brian a spot of advice. Elsewhere, in London, at the BBC offices of Radio 1, top DJ Scott Wright heads for his car. He's met by his new chauffeur, whom he creepily flirts with, but don't worry, she's there to kidnap him. And by him, I mean Micromax, the apparently not-so-secret identity of Mr. Wright. Back at the Mastermind computer cavern under Braddock Manor, Kitty investigates the computer's brokenness. She and Farron debate who's the bigger asshole, spoiler, it's Farron, and then Widget shows up, yelling about sentinels. He vanishes as quickly as he came. On the south coast of England, at the Braddock family's summer cottage, how many houses does the sky have anyway? Brian and Megan are enjoying some fun in the sun. Brian proposes. Megan says yes. They share a wet kiss. All is not wine and roses, however. From the cliffs above, a mysterious figure is watching, declaring there will be no happy ending. Back in space, Phoenix and Galactus's battle reaches its climax. As Galactus stumbles to the ground, Phoenix orders him to renounce his ways, but Galactus calls Phoenix a hypocrite, saying she's as much of a killer as he is. Where he prefers to feed on dead worlds, the Phoenix Force apparently feeds on life itself, sustaining itself at the expense of all the life that's yet to come. As the Phoenix reacts with horror to what it's done, it flees into space. We conclude back on Earth with Kitty answering a phone call at Braddock Manor. It's Alistair. 
He tells her that he's found the people who framed his sister. It's an RCX job, and he's also found their base, under derelict St. Oswald's Church in Liverpool. But before he can say more, Alistair is struck down by a hooved assailant. And then, the line goes dead. So Jason, I know you know your Excalibur very well, so asking for your first impressions of this issue is maybe a little bit silly, but I'll ask anyway, and I'll ask it in this way. Do you have a memory of reading this comic the first time around, and is there anything that stood out to you upon rereading the comic? Uh, I was just really happy to have Rachel back after 10 issues yeah. flying off into space. No kidding. Mm-hmm. I just had my letter mm-hmm. printed for Hank. Hey, join the Phoenix for uh, Where'd You Go? <laughs> oh, <laughs> yeah. That timing is terrible. <laughs> I never thought about it. Oh, wow. I didn't actually realize that. You said it. Like, Ten issues going. I'm like, wait a minute. Ten issues? That was when you had your... Oh, my God. Uh-huh. Wow. <laughs> Thanks for the fan club, kid. Bye. (laughs) Or maybe that's why they brought her back. Probably not. (laughs) I'm sure Davis had more of a plan to bring her back at some point. But first impressions, no, uh, happy to have her back. It was great to see that cover is one of my all-time favorite covers, aside from almost every other Excalibur issue. This series just has great iconic covers, doesn't it? It does. Don't want to go too far off that track. No, it was great to have Phoenix back. It wasn't technically Rachel. She was still kind of catatonic floating in, in, in her own body. It was my reading of it, which I believe is the right one. It's the Phoenix Force in control for most of this issue. And it was kind of fun just seeing her going toe-to-toe with the Galactus. Yeah, and it's so beautiful. God, these pages. I mean, I, the space battle in 50 was nice. I think this one's better. Like, I think he did himself on some of these splashes. Uh, yeah, and I like that they actually go the extra mile to put into the text. There is no atmosphere on the planet, so there's no sound effects to mess with the beautiful splash yeah. pages. As far as Phoenix goes, that's uh, uh, pretty much my first impressions that I can remember. A big yay. Yeah, we'll get into more some more plot stuff, but first impressions from you, Andrew and Mav. Like, I'll kick it to you first, Andrew. How are you feeling getting <laughs> home from Wakanda and back to some regular Excalibur business? <laughs> uh, ecstatic. Um, yeah, I, I think in the midst of that, one of the things that I was really thinking about with this issue, and I don't even know why, it is just how much I like Davis when he goes into a more experimental mode uh, and he starts to use asymmetric paneling and he starts to lean sort of a- away from the Dave Gibbons British style and more into the mm-hmm. Neil Adams American style. Like he thrives in that. And I don't know why. I-, I think it might be because for me, Davis's illustrations can look too perfect and that can steal some of the energy from the scenes. And I'm not complaining about Alan Davis ever. Uh, I'm just saying, you know, how one Alan Davis might differ from another. And I think in a, a, an issue like this, where he's he's really messing around quite a bit with his draftsmanship, I think it pays off in a huge way. How about you, Mav? How are you feeling? Similar. I, Davis's experimentalism does he does one of the things that I love most about the way comics can work. It was something that we played with a lot when we were doing my comic strip, when we were doing Cosmic Hellcats. I like when the action can't be contained by a panel. And there are uh. a couple. One of the most obvious is when um, on page 10, when Kurt punches Brian out of a panel. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Like, and there's, just, a, there's they, an edge on that, too, to make mm-hmm. it clear that he's going out of the panel. It is a showing you now the panels are already overlaid to where the Kitty Megan panel and um, panel number two is already overlapping panel number three where the punch happens. But the fact that Brian gets punched out of the panel, which gives you it's not a meta moment. This isn't She-Hulk. This isn't Deadpool. This isn't Gwenpool. It is just showing you how 
badly Brian got hit so that even before you see Brian's knocked out, you know, wait, you know, Kurt should not have been able to hurt Brian like that because, you know, that the power levels should not have been that much of an effect. So things like that, that's the art telling story. Similarly, on the next page, page 11, you have panels two and three, which are a separated panel in order to give Brian and Megan their own space, but they don't need to be. That's just one panel with a line down the middle of it. So you end up with an enjambed panel to use a poetry term because I'm a literary, uh, literary scholar sometimes. Um, <laughs> the, um, <laughs> but like, but like you're using this weird enjambment in order to get the idea of, you know, sort of closeness and it becomes an, emo it, it becomes very, very emotional. So in addition to all of the splash pages of which there are five in this issue, because I counted ahead of time, which also do the, the splash pages also have Galactus and Rachel or Rachel's body you know, as it, as it were sort of extending outside of outside the panels a lot. There's a lot of that in this issue, which just sort of after some fill in artist, um, it really sort of recalls, Oh yeah, that's one of the things that we like about him. It's, you know, he's very much in his element for this book. I mean, I found mm -hmm. myself very, and we can talk about this more in terms of sort of characterization stuff, although it's a weird question since, you know, it is and isn't Rachel here, but just, I found myself really struck by the images of Rachel and sort of mm, the power of those images, but the way it was sort of like this diffuse subjective power that there's a lot of different ways that you can kind of interpret sort of the power and vulnerability of a lot of those images. You know, mm -hmm. she's sort of falling and powerful and making all of these sort of very iconic poses. And again, the fact that we often don't have dialogue or sound effects for a lot of these scenes makes these images iconic in that way that you can invest a lot of yourself in them and sort of do what you want with those images. And just thinking about these as sort of images of a powerful woman and what that means was sort of something that I found myself thinking about a lot. But um, let's talk about that more because I want to ask you, Jason, about sort of the cosmic turn for Rachel and sort of what your mileage is on that. You were telling us that you just finished listening to our episode about her other fight with Galactus. So yeah, we've talked a little bit about her evolution into a cosmic being before, but... What's your mileage on that evolution? Do you feel that that kind of enhances her as a character? Or do you feel that there are kind of drawbacks to that approach to the character? Uh, there's drawbacks to it simply because making a character this overpowered where they can go this toe-to-toe -to -toe with Galactus can be limiting in storytelling. But at the same time, I really love cosmic overpowered characters. So hmm. having Rachel step up to that was kind of a justification of my love of the character. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, she is great. Look what she can do. Look what the Phoenix can do. <laughs> and I don't know if we want to get there yet or if we want to hold off for a bit to talk about the source of the Phoenix's power that they reveal in this issue. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we can talk okay, about then. it because it's 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 all <laughs> it's all interconnected. So yeah, yeah, what was your feeling about it, Jason? Like did you feel that uh, this added to Rachel's story or or not? I actually found it really confusing. I didn't know what to make of it. I still don't all these years later. I, I kind of think it's interesting to put her as a kind of opposite isn't quite the right word, but she's, you know, on that spectrum with Galactus and kind of comparing the two in that way. But I don't know if this really adds anything to it. But at the same time, the Phoenix Force feeding on the the lifespan of the universe itself kind of makes sense in a way i don't know if i can explain it any better than the book did found it nebulous and fuzzy 
Um, yeah, it, it I was. Aggressively hate it. I, I, okay. I so we'll okay. I don't you. think I. I don't think I like it, and I and it's hard because I don't know. I don't remember how I felt about it then. Thirty years ago, I think I just felt like that was a weird. That was a okay. I guess like it, like I think that's how I felt about it at the time, and then now reading it, I go, this feels way too wrapped up in like sort of an idea of pro-lifeism to which makes me yeah. uncomfortable mm. in ways that I'm like I don't, you know. it's like I and I don't think it's <laughs> intentional I think it's more of a yeah. are were, were you really thinking about what you were seeing here because it's creepy and okay also the Phoenix Force has had let me see one two three 18 billion different origins in <laughs> over comics history yeah. so like this is not my favorite like i'm not like when you say oh you have wiped out a potential life what does that even mean like particularly given that galactus tries to do the well you know the universe is finite so steady state theory blah 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 and it's like uh i think you're sort of there's cosmic you know scientific babble and then there's i think you just sort of ran past your runway here a little bit <laughs> <laughs> and, and that's kind of where i think davis is here it's like yeah you were going for a thing and you just sort of you overshot yeah. the runway and i know and, and it doesn't work for me so that's where i'm at but it was it was weird i think it tries to get too specific when it, it, he says that she's taking the life from an unborn child or, or whatever however yeah. they phrase it in the book yeah. Which is why I always gross. They figure it gross is how yeah. it is. Which is why I've always kind of leaned more towards that the universe is a very vast but finite energy source and the more she uses her power, the shorter the lifespan of the universe itself, not that micro specific example they give in the book. You've written the best I like story. I like that a lot better. I like that a lot better. Yeah. That's that also in there in the text, but they muddy the waters with that really <laughs> awkward metaphor that I don't want to dwell on too much. Yeah, well, Andrew, sound off on it. What is your aggressive hatred for it bound up in? I'm agreeing with Jason and Matt. For, for me, and I, I think I'm always going to be a Claremont apologist or purist or something like that. Um, this is a major recontextualization of that entire mythology. Uh, the Phoenix was always portrayed as infinite beyond the very concept of time. Uh, again, this idea of sort of um, um, cyclical time, not solid state. Um, so to have it be sort of a, a finite cosmic machine, I don't know, that takes away a a lot of the mythology and a lot of the sort of um, broader, I don't know, maybe even spiritual elements of the phoenix as mm -hmm. a symbol. Uh, and I think when you do that, of course, you then have this ricochet effect where you then change the meaning of the character and everybody who's had the phoenix name at this point, the two of them. Um, and yeah, it, it's it, it, it's too big. I just feel like it's it's a cool idea to push Rachel in new directions. I really like that. Um, but one of the things that makes Rachel kind of cool and one of the things that always has defined her is this connection to Phoenix mythology. So rewriting it feels, maybe as Mav was saying, like, like it's just, it's too big a swing. Yeah, I mean, I... <sighs> It's hard, right? Cause, I mean, I just, I had to think about the womanness of this, right? And, you know, that thing of the phoenix being limitless and being a different way of conceiving time. It's not necessarily feminine, but it can be in as much as linear narratives or 
connotatively male and all of these things sort of in Western philosophy and everything. So the idea of it being a type of power that's resistant or different from or subverting, you know, traditionally masculine types of power. I don't know what that looks like. And I think that it's been done so many times that I think I've lost track of it. But to me, that's very much sort of the promise of the phoenix. And yeah, I mean, I just... As someone who is just <laughs> in a white-hot rage all the time anymore about reproductive <laughs> rights. <laughs> I mean, that's mm -hmm. me all the time, but especially this year. It's mm -hmm. just this language about the sea of life yet unborn and the idea that that is the most valuable thing and that doing that is worse than what Galactus does. I really understand they didn't mean this to be something about reproductive rights and yet that idea Did of they? potential I don't, I don't know it's hard like it, it seems right there you know what i mean i know yeah. i know but regardless of that though that thinking about potential life being more valuable than life that exists is part of the ideology of what's going on in reproductive rights right now so when i read it it definitely wasn't something that i thought about the first time i read the comic i just wasn't in the headspace of thinking about that but in the context of everything going on i couldn't not see that and i was really like uh why i don't know I, i'm glad that other people picked up on it too and that it wasn't just me i was just like is this just me like having that but, on the brain or yeah. no we it's not that's he kind was of trying like... to make rachel into spawn because spawn was popular at this time with the idea <laughs> of finite energy consumption well mm. yes no I, I think he's exactly trying to do okay so what spawn is trying to do with the idea of you know you have a finite amount of energy and you can burn it out that's actually an interesting concept that yeah. i i think you i think could be taken to an interesting place with the phoenix force because even if the phoenix force is infinite rachel is not the phoenix force rachel is using the phoenix force so sure maybe you have a finite connection that you know you could do something interesting there i don't think that's what davis is going for i think davis is going for a connection it's the usage of the words you are wiping out potential life and it is mm. you know galactus is very clear in this book about how he feels about it he's like i'm consuming old people who are dying you are consuming babies who are yet to live that's basically what he says it's creepy it's gross it's very and it's not like that debate didn't exist in 1993 i was around yeah. i remember where the pro-life versus pro-choice movements were in 1993 and i don't think he's i don't think davis is going for and maybe this is wishful thinking, but I don't think he's going for the pro-lifers are right. I don't think that's what he's doing. I think he's informed by the same kinds of ideological thinking that spawned that debate. I'm getting very metaphysical. <laughs> and, and I'm, I'm, well, yeah, oh. yeah, that too. But I mean, I but I, I can't not look at this like a, you know, college professor who teaches ethics because that's who I am, right? And er, like, if you're going to do that, it feels like you're getting into this ideological debate that, again, overran his runway, took too big a swing. I think he's trying to do something interesting, but he opened a can of worms that he can't fulfill. He Like, he's yeah. not, you know, he's gone beyond his ability. Like, the questions that this raises with what I think he thinks is just a fundamentally interesting question become sort of metaphysically weird. 
And that's the danger of the Phoenix. It's the danger of doing anything um, godlike or cosmic in the Marvel Universe. Like I always have this theory in the Marvel Universe that in the space of the Marvel Universe or the Marvel Cinematic Universe today, religion as we know it in our real life doesn't make sense, right? Like no right. one can just be a Christian or a Jew or a Muslim in a world where Galactus exists. Because he should be, you know, Galactus comes down to Earth and everyone can see him. And that should be an all-consuming religion. People disappeared from the MCU for five years. That should just completely restructure the way we think about the concept of life and death. So, like, it becomes weird. And I think that Davis is trying to make an interesting question out of, you know, the human, our reality question of when, you know, what is life? What is potential life? And I think it's just, like, it's too big a question and he's not prepared for it as far as intention i don't know it feels gross to me <laughs> that's that's where i'm where i'm at i land at the why are you don't don't do that you, you didn't, because well no because jason's because jason's version of it is better right like jason's version of it is unconfusing and you said look the universe has like energy and you have to like you, you're, you're taking from the universe i don't need the whole question of life and children i don't need that it just it just makes it feel muddy and gross like i don't think it adds anything to the story that's why i like yours better yeah and i think there's an interesting take with it if trying to put limits on the phoenix force that they can't just reach out and do anything they're capable of it but doing it has consequences in some vague way and it tries to put limits on the phoenix force that unfortunately never really go anywhere yeah definitely i just i don't know i just like i feel like a broken record complaining about <laughs> it's that thing of like being like feminist comic book scholar you just always feel like you're being a killjoy and you're just complaining all the time because it's just thing after thing after thing and i love excalibur so much and i don't want to complain about these things but it's just like that image of her being informed by galactus that by being powerful by being a superhero by trying to save the world she is wiping out potential life and then having her make the horrified face it is a little bit of that monstrous feminine thing coming in there that like the consequences of her power are like destroying unborn babies and it's like <laughs> i mean i'm sorry but that meaning is there there's a huge anti-feminist yeah. reading of this scene yeah. well a little bit of reparative uh, reparative reading to it though is galactus talking to rachel or is galactus yeah, talking yeah. to the phoenix which is the which is a different question right because so here's the thing that sticks out in 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 this book for me and it's i made a joke about it in my intro when i said i'm gonna be very very judgmental um which i'm not but like the phoenix force is the phoenix force is straight up like i'm good and you're evil galactus and galactus is like f you i kill you know things that are dying anyway and i'm just eating and you're just extinguishing all life i'm a better person like that's the question that they have and i i think galactus and i don't think this is me reading it i think the intention of this book is very much that galactus knows he's not talking to rachel galactus is talking to the phoenix force and saying you know you infinite being are worse than even i am you know i am doing what is necessary to survive so i think that I don't know that it's so much better because I think all the things that we've just been complaining about for the last 10 minutes are still there, but I think it's trying to make a, you know, it very much, Rachel never killed a, a solar system. That was the Phoenix force being Gene. And I think this book wants us to think that this is that same Phoenix and not the body that is Rachel who was not born yet. 
At least that's what I yeah. think it's supposed to happen. Yeah, but I mean, it goes right back to sort of the feminist meaning of the Phoenix Force and like the original stories, right? And then mm-hmm. we still have the mm-hmm. visualization here of like a female presenting face being horrified by this news. And it's just, you can't get past that, right? And I mean, she's in the green Phoenix costume, right? That costume that sort of... Right symbolizes so many things in terms of Jean going from being Marvel girl to being Phoenix to being this more second wave conscious character and like second wave feminism conscious character and yeah it's just tough it's it's a tough rhetorical move and I don't want to spend the whole podcast about it but it definitely it caught me up a little bit in this issue as as excited as I was to be back to Alan Davis as much as I love so many of the Phoenix images in this comic that that moment definitely caught me up a little bit well I want to have one more question for Jason before we before we move off of of some of the Rachel stuff, which is, I mean, how do you feel about this presentation of her as a cosmic being in terms of how it might distance us from kind of her emotionally? Because I mean, kind of one of the things I was thinking about was, you know, we had that same issue in the, in what was it, Excalibur 52, um, that issue that was just retconning from the Phoenix's perspective. And, you know, we talked there about, it was frustrating because it's just Phoenix talking, right? And we're not having sort of Rachel's input here. Like, did that bother you in this comic? Or is it sort of okay? Because we know that this is going somewhere. Uh, It didn't bother me that much not even when I first read it just because my love isn't just for Rachel I also yeah, have an yeah. affinity for the Phoenix entire yeah that's fair and kind of this issue and issue 52 are the two issues in my brain that kind of define who and what Rachel and the Phoenix are for good and ill as we've been discussing mm-hmm. I don't know yeah like I mean how do you do you feel sort of closer to her or distanced from her I guess when we kind of have these issues that are told from the Phoenix's perspective I do feel more distant from Rachel as a character just because I'm invested in what she thinks what she's doing and in this story she's not even really a passenger at, at this point she's a face and while i love just having her body back in the book and that sounds really horrible yeah um, <laughs> alan davis yeah. exactly there just having the, the chance to explore more of the phoenix force and uh that's great but yes it is still three or four issues before we really have rachel herself back yeah. in full force yeah. She's going to be floating around in space and just floating there for the next four issues. So <laughs> it's just like, that's what I want our listeners to be, to be aware of what they're in for. Cause it's barely a spoiler. The next oh, four there issues. Is one is... thing I thought of um, okay. the first uh, page of the issue talks about how Rachel is recovering and it kind of brought me back to the original deal that the Phoenix force had with Jean Grey and how that went horribly wrong. And there's a lot of touchstones in this issue uh, with the Phoenix Force exploring emotions and uh, how its interactions with humans have not gone well in the past and even now are still having their consequences. And I like how, in a lot of ways, this is the Phoenix Force itself coming full circle and revisiting things it did in the past and finding a new better way to do it with a a little more consent's not the word i'm looking for but instead of just secretly shoving gene gray into a cocoon at the bottom of the bay everyone knows what's going on with rachel at this point and there's a bit more nicety to it and openness so she's kind of going about it a slightly better way but still being a 
indescribable cosmic being that we can never truly fathom. Yeah, which, you know, I don't hate that. I mean, I love a lot of cosmic comic books and unfathomable cosmic beings. So I honestly was just asking the question because I'm like 50-50 on it because, yeah, having this sort of delving into the Phoenix mythos, I do enjoy in theory, even even if some of the handling of it, as we just talked about, isn't exactly what we would like. But anyway, we're going to get more of that. We're going to get more of sort of Rachel's interactions with the Phoenix and what that means. So I don't want to be too hard on this issue. Let's talk about some of the other stuff we have here because we haven't talked about the engagement of Brian and Megan and I almost don't want to talk about it because I know we haven't been that pro Brian and Megan on the podcast but let's touch base with the evolving story here. You know, we have Alan Davis coming back. We're touching base with the team dynamics a little bit. Like how is he kind of handling getting us back on track, you know, making this feel like Excalibur and sort of setting some plot points in motion. Like, I'll come to you with that, Andrew. You know, what? how did you feel about the storytelling here? I, um, I, I, think, I think a lot of what I would say would come down to my critique about the proposal itself, which is I'm a broken person and I can never offer you the attention you deserve, but I don't want to be without you, so marry me. And she's like, yeah, okay. <laughs> Top-notch proposal, Brian. <laughs> I should should ask you, Jason, because we've done plenty of griping about, you know, (laughs) that relationship and some of Brian's behavior in the past. So what's your mileage on the on the Brian and Megan relationship? Are you rooting for the two of them to to get together and make it work? I kind of am because you're allowed to. You're allowed to. (laughs) I, I, I came into the book with issue 42. So. Brian is at a very different point in his evolution under yeah. Alan Davis than yes, he is yes. in the first 20 issues of this book. Mm-hmm. I would argue he that Alan Davis is a better steward of Brian than Claremont was for a lot of those issues. I, I would say that he has genuinely matured during Davis's run. He's not a perfect person at this point still. He has his load of problems, and I never really thought about Brian as the character that I'm kind of rediscovering now listening to you guys covering the first 25 issues or so and you're not wrong but having the later stuff in my head I I kind of look at that as like oh well he turns out okay ish (laughs) (laughs) yeah well I mean I'll say too that I've partly been turned around on it over the course of the podcast because I was never into them as a couple but because i knew that's where they ended up i just sort of accepted that that's where things were going Mm -hmm. but like as we've been going through each issue and i've really been thinking closely about a lot of his behavior and the excellent arguments that sort of andrew made um about the abusive aspects when we first got going with the podcast that has changed my some of my thinking about it as well so (laughs) yeah once an episode not just about brian i i end up going oh I never thought about it like that before. Yeah. Yeah. How about you, Mav? Are are you being Um, sold on kind of the development here a little bit? I mean, he's trying. He's definitely trying to sell us on it. I am I sold on it? No. And the reason is because I did start reading this, you know, 61 issues ago, 62 issues ago, because I read issue zero the first time. Right. Though I think what Jason's saying makes a lot of sense. And I think you have an interesting take, right? Because if you, if you start Excalibur, would you say your first issue was 42, right? 42. Yeah. So if you start Excalibur that later, that late in the run, 
your Brian, we always talk about like um, if you're a Doctor Who fan, who's your doctor? Which means who was the doctor when you started watching Doctor Who, right? And for you, Brian is very much closer to this person that right. we're reading in this book. And anything that you read from when you went back, that sort of backstory that like the the reference copy in your head, he's already evolved away from. So right. it's probably an easier sell on you. And I don't think it's I don't think that's wrong because as I always say on this on this show, Davis is the writer of record now. Yeah. This is his story. Claremont's not coming back and he's never coming back. And this is it. You know, so so right now the story Davis wants to tell is not the story of the broken relationship with the abusive boyfriend. He is doing everything that he can to do reparative work. I am a little more generous on the proposal than Andrew is because <laughs> I, I mean, okay. Andrew's not wrong. However, Davis is writing very much a classic soap opera ending proposal for Brian and Megan. This is by the numbers. This could have ended up in any rom-com. Like I've seen Meg Ryan have this conversation a dozen times, right? Like, yeah. <laughs> like that's what this <laughs> is. I am a broken man. I am nothing without you. You know, you know, it's a man's world, but it doesn't mean nothing without a woman or a girl. Like literally every trope of, you know, <laughs> you complete me um, in Jerry Maguire is like wrapped up in this moment. And so I see what they're trying to do. And yes, Andrew's absolutely right. If you actually break down what he's absolutely, what he's actually saying, you know, he's like, I'm a pathetic loser. So, you know, <laughs> you're, you know, and you've got every reason to say no, but you know, you know take a shot anyway. Like it, 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 it is kind of a lame, like what, what he's actually asking sounds awful, but it's, it's also the way that romance worked in yeah in the yeah. 80s and i know it's 1993 but like um davis very much has like sort of an 80s idealism aspect to the way he writes these romantic relationships so so i never had a problem with that my problem with it is um i'm gonna bring nightcrawler into the relationship here and it's gonna enjoy this oh please <laughs> because um alan very much wants to move past the will Megan cheat with Kurt stance. Like he's yeah, like, yeah. he very much, he does not want to write, write the love triangle and that's fine. You're the writer of record, but if you're going to be the writer of record, don't remind me because Kurt's speech on page 11 is gross because it's like, it's, it's, yeah. I don't like it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. How, you know, how does she know love needs to be expressed, nurtured? Brian, I can understand the rage that drives you to avenge Courtney, blah, 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 blah. It's like, dude, you spent the first 25 issues of this book trying to sleep with his girlfriend actively. It's <laughs> gross. <laughs> and, and, and I don't, and, and, and I get that it's a different writer, uh, but like Brian could have had this conversation with kitty and that problem goes away yeah and i think it characterizes megan as superficially shallow and needy at the same time which sucks but coming from kurt that sucks it, a lot it, it, and it and it's like because i can't like i understand why i understand why davis doesn't want to do that story but that story is still in my head so don't remind me if you don't want to do it, it, it like like right. kurt is the one person in excalibur who knew that brian was having an affair and kept it to himself which again complicated gross thing but and it was never dealt with because claremont left the book and and it's not going to get dealt with so don't remind me of it because davis knows that happened and it, and it just mm. everything about that becomes like really really creepy 
I feel like what he's trying to do there is to do a thing where he's trying to move the love triangle forward by being like, look how mature they are now. They can talk to each other about these things. And (laughs) the things that Brian (laughs) saw or the things that Megan saw in Kurt, he can now pay forward and help Brian succeed with Megan. And this is supposed to be super positive and everything. But yeah, I know, I know, I get it. <laughs> it's like, I know, I'm not saying I like it, but I kind of like see what he's trying I, I, to do I, there. I see, what he, I see what he's going for. No, no not yes, even in 1993. No, oh, don't. <laughs> I, well, I maintain that what I really would have liked that we've never had and up to 2022, we have never, ever had is an actual conversation between Megan and Kurt. We've never had it. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. that is sad because it's always this conversation between Brian and Kurt negotiating Megan. Like as though, you know, she says she's not an object and everything, but you are still treating her like one because you don't just talk to Mm -hmm. her, you talk to each other about Mm -hmm. her. And, you know, that's something friends do. But the fact that there's never a conversation between Kurt and Megan and they were participants in the situation, too. And it just that doesn't feel right because there's no friendship there between them. And so if we're going to move on and pretend everybody's friends and teammates, it still feels like Brian and Kurt are keeping stuff from Megan and that she's still not a full participant. And like, yeah, I don't know. I don't know how I feel about that. But I will say, I mean, getting back to being sold on the engagement with Megan and Brian, like, boy, he does some work with the art on those two pages, really trying to sell us on the romance. Like, I don't know that Brian has ever looked this perfectly cheesecakey as he does on these two pages. It is really, yeah, I mean... Mm. Well, we could talk about gazes a little bit there too, right? And Mm -hmm. I mean, it doesn't have to be any specific gaze that's at play here. I think there can be a lot of different gazes gazing at this version Mm -hmm. of Brian. But I mean, he's definitely sort of vulnerable and gaze-addable. I mean, even if you think about the picture of him on the bottom of 23, you know, doing that kind of pose where he's not doing a big flex pose. He's not staring at us aggressively. His eyes are turned away and, you know, he's very passive in that moment. And we usually think about that kind of body language as making a body sort of more accessible to our gaze, particularly masculine bodies, which aren't aren't sort of depicted that way very often. So it is important that he's bringing that visual rhetoric to bear here and trying to sell us on marrying Brian effectively, because it is communicating something about his vulnerability and his accessibility through the art. And that is important to note, because it isn't just the dialogue, right? It's the scene as well. And I mean, that kiss, the kiss is good. I just, it is a good kiss. <laughs> I, I will say this, it's, it's a, a very Brian proposal. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it really is. <laughs> and you can take that however you want and we're all I, right. <laughs> no, I I like the vulnerability of it. I mean, if you're going to do this and again, I'm 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 giving it leeway as hard as I was on some of the stuff. I'm giving this some of the leeway of this is not 2022, this is 1993. And if you're going to do the rom-com I'm not a man without you proposal, then this artwork gives me the vulnerability that Brian is afraid she'll say no, which is a thing that, you know, I mean, having been someone who's proposed before that fear is there. It's not a reasonable fear. We'd been, you know, when I proposed, we'd been living together for six years. I knew she wasn't. We'd bought a home. <laughs> like, like, <laughs> like, like, I, did, I, I, like, like rationally, it didn't make sense that like no might happen, but that, you know, just as, an anxiety of being a human being asking that question that that anxiety is there i i I get Mm -hmm. that right that said 
it's just it, it's the sum total of all parts right so like my problems with it are with me analyzing it because this is my job and i'm doing a you know a radio show where we do this right <laughs> but, but but um but like just sort of as a as a pure aesthetic it's a romantic scene it's um i feel bad for him i feel even though i'm not afraid she's gonna say no of course she's gonna say yes mm -hmm. megan wants this more than anything right but it feels vulnerable and it feels natural and it feels real so this is probably the most romantic i actually feel about them in the entire run as far as things go because there's again there's some stuff coming up in their relationship which i think is real stupid um <laughs> this is not it <laughs> yeah, <laughs> this yeah. is not it this is like oh okay that's um yeah okay i i get that i, I get the romance here this you know you've got a you're taking a, a a week away you know you're gonna go swim with you know megan loves swimming we know that you know she turned herself gave herself gills or whatever it's neat i, I like it it's, it feels romantic and nice and we needed okay. these two pages too, I think, to sell us because mm -hmm. there is sort of an issue where <laughs> Megan's most romantic scenes previously have been with Kurt. I mean, yes, it's the yep, dream sequence in 43 so. and it's the kiss in number four. And mm -hmm. this is him trying to top that a little bit with confirming this romantic relationship through the visualization here. And it feels like a very deliberate choice in that way. There's mm. also the bar date, but he didn't draw that. So this is of, yeah. of the things that right. Davis worked on. Yeah, this is um, most romantic that he has had to put the two of them together. Yeah. And I mean, I'd still say that the bar one was like a little bit sort of jokey, too. And like, it didn't feel sexy in the same way. Something like right. that sparkle sweat curtain naked dream sequence felt like. No, it felt romantic and real. That like, to me, yeah, the bar yeah. one is like, like that, that was a, I mean, other than the supervillains attacking that, that's a date mm -hmm. that I've actually been on. I've never flown on yeah, a yeah. jungle gym before. <laughs> you know, I've been to, I've been to bars with people. <laughs> Anyway, sorry, Andrew, did you want to jump in a second ago? No, I'm just being petty at this point. Um, all, all I would say, he literally doesn't mention anything about her in his proposal. Do you know what I mean? No, it's yeah, all about what true. she means to him exclusively. Megan has uh, no personality at this point, it's a though. a weak proposal, Brian. <laughs> I see, Andrew, I try to be nice about it, and then you say something that is so true, and I'm just like, damn it. <laughs> it's true it's true well we're gonna have more of this engagement drama between megan and brian and some subsequent issues this is going to continue a little bit so mm -hmm. we'll talk about it again but i mm -hmm. wanted to talk just before we close like about kitty and Farron here because we haven't talked about kitty that much recently and someone pointed out on twitter and i agree that kitty has not been as central under davis as she was under no. claremont we know how much claremont loved the character i don't think davis writes her out of character or that he writes her like he hates her or anything but he just seems to me like he clearly doesn't have the same affection for the character that claremont had and i think that that's pretty fair i'll come to you with it jason like was that something that you noticed in terms of like the shift to davis and you know do you like anything that happens with her here i mean i wanted to think specifically about the scene that she has with farron like is this a good moment of character growth for kitty uh, I think it is, especially because on this reading, I have the first 25 episodes of you guys talking about how Kitty is portrayed and having your comments in my head when she literally has that same realization of, oh, I have been this exact sort of person was just one of those great moments. And even back back uh, in the day when she... she uh, having her have that moment it's 
it's not forced because you have those moments in life where you're talking to someone and realize, oh, I'm actually talking about myself. Yeah. And having Kitty finally have that moment of, oh, I have been this exact sort of arrogant person is a long time coming in a lot of ways. Yeah, what was what was what was your mileage on it, Andrew? I think it's comparable to what Davis was doing with Kurt in the the trolls miniseries or the trolls arc. Mm-hmm. Um, basically, trying to suggest that over on the X Men you were being smothered or limited or held back to some degree, and now you're independent and can do something different. I, I disagree with the premise that the X Men pampered Kitty. Yeah, she was a child mm-hmm. soldier at the age of fifteen and led yeah. a tactical unit at one point. It's not um, the same. But it is an interesting direction to go with the character. And as you said, I think Davis has really been sidelining her. So I'm I'm happy that he's picking up anything to do with Kitty at this point. Yeah. And I mean, he does try to kind of make it better because, you know, she's like, wait, you're right. There is something in common with us. And he's like, well, so then I shouldn't have to do anything. She's like, hell no, you still have to do stuff. So it's not like she's saying they're exactly <laughs> the same. Like, I mean, there is some nuance there, right? And also, yeah. it's at least doing something with Theron, who has kind of been shoved on the team as... I don't want to say Davis's pet character because there's plenty of stuff for uh, other characters that he clearly loves, but Farron was brought in in the late 40s, and back when these comics were coming out, everyone was just kind of like, why is this guy on the team? (laughs) And at least having him play off of Kitty as a sort of foil at least gives us something interesting to do with him and Kitty. Yeah, we needed that, right? You know, what is his role in the team? What is the dynamic of him within the team? And, you know, unfortunately, we're still not really getting that with Cerise, who is just kind of here to do magic-y light armor stuff again. I don't really have anything to say about it because I'm just like, yeah, I mean, it's a scene. It establishes where we are in the issue. I do find it a little bit weird that Brian and Kurt are fighting and the girls are on the sidelines watching them because they're also oh, superheroes, yeah. but whatever. I thought you were talking about Farron because I have a slight t- different take. I Go hate for it. this. I, I, okay. I despise. <laughs> I actually don't have a problem with Farron telling Kitty, well, you're pam- I'm pampered just like you were because I agree with Andrew. It was different, but Farron enough of a dick to not get that yeah right? he so would I, say I, that I got, he would say that um to me this interchange between theron and kitty reads too much like they're trying to do a sitcom meet cute they're trying to make a couple happen here <gasps> oh, and God. it's gross and i and i and no it never happens it never comes it, it doesn't but like that's what the, this is the argument that courtney cox and michael j fox have on family ties it's the argument that ross and rachel have on friends it's the argument it's very much a no we're bickering because we're secret and secretly in love kind of no 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 oh god and it's gross and it doesn't work because there's no chemistry between the characters if you're going to do this moment where kitty needs to come to the realization that you know no you have because i I agree with everything jason said you know i've said it a lot if kitty's going to come to the realization that no i've been i've been an asshole and i've been treating these people mean just because i'm you know kind of holier than thou have that realization with danny or rain or sam one of the new units you know that realization with Theron, who is a dick and who we just met like it it rings less i mean like yeah kitty has been kind of mean to Theron because Theron's a jerk kitty is mean to the new mutants because kitty is a jerk and that mm. so so it makes a difference right kitty constantly called them the ex-babies as in and yep. to the point where there's a point where Ilyana has you know her best friend has to call her out and say 
we're the same age as you cut the crap right like that's a Mm -hmm. so like kitty having that realization for a different character would work better i'm okay with her growing it just sort of it's a little hollow especially since it really feels like you're trying to make a couple happen here and that's not gonna happen so don't don't worry it's not gonna happen but it feels there's a few interactions with him especially this one where it really felt like i remember reading this back in 1993 going oh no 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 because i I really thought that that's what they where they were going with this and i'm i'm glad it doesn't happen but it feels like that's what they're trying to do so well that makes me like it a lot less mav (laughs) (laughs) well that but but that's why i didn't like it i mean it doesn't again don't worry it doesn't happen right yeah yeah, yeah. but it felt like that to me and and even reading it then i was like oh yeah this is that part where they're, you know, they're being cutesy. It's the it's the cutesy argument that happens on sitcoms mm-hmm. when you want mm-hmm. to when you want two alpha characters to eventually fall in love. It happens on a dozen sitcoms every year. So mm-hmm. yeah, I almost uh, I'm kind of doing that bad thing where you rewrite the scene, but I almost wish that it had gone to physical violence between them. You know, like she had <laughs> like actually hit him or something, and then that mm-hmm. would kind of be the moment of realization because it's like it's not that she was unfair to him because I actually think. That she isn't unfair to him (laughs) and maybe she doesn't deserve that but like at the same time you know there's a way to deal with people and there's a way to not deal with people and so the lesson would be like about that not being the right way to deal with people right right because he's actually Mm. being an ass he's actually wrong (laughs) so like when he's like oh well yeah i'm just doing the same thing that you are i'm like well not really because kitty kitty when her interactions with the x-men were always a lot of stop treating me like a baby i can do this and you and she was right she was capable you know professor x is a jerk because professor x has removed me from the team you know for my own good i was a minor but um but like you know she had proven herself like i understand where kitty was during that that arc farron is doing that same thing here he's basically saying no i'm too good to clean up and it's like screw you dude no you know (laughs) so it doesn't it doesn't work the same way well yeah i mean i wonder whether the intrusion of widget makes it better or worse because in terms of thinking about kitty's character growth and where we know that storyline is going that's an interesting thing to signpost within this scene but we will leave that hanging because we are still not at the reveal of the identity of widget and we will certainly talk about that more when we get to it um let's move to some final thoughts because there's lots of stuff we didn't talk about that we certainly could talk about and i will give jason the final word but i'll come to you first andrew stuff from this issue that you want to talk about that we didn't get a chance uh just briefly the fourth wall break implicit in this quote uh you obviously don't know who you're dealing with i'm micromax we know but we're not impressed (laughs) we didn't talk okay i wrote it into the notes like for the final thoughts like did we talk about micromax we should talk about him and despite that being (laughs) written down on my sheet i still forgot that we didn't talk about him and that he was present in this issue and we get backstory for him he's like the radio dj we get a little bit of i mean yeah i mean he's also just like a like sexist jerk and like i guess that's fine i mean yeah but i not really knowing where we're going with that character and knowing that we anyway that's looking ahead for the time being sighting of micromax that's important he's there (laughs) that still raises questions though about like what davis is doing with him though right i mean if he's making jokes about how useless micromax is like dude you invented this character you brought him into the team i don't know I don't know. But um, Mav, uh, <laughs> final thoughts from you. So my final thought is about Micromax. Um, this is the most Perfect. interesting <laughs> that he is in the entire series. <laughs> um, yep. Because it's a, it's one little detail. 
when he gets knocked out, he turns skinny and balding, which means mm-hmm. that Micromax is constantly using his powers to be hot. Awesome. Mm-hmm. Nice little detail. I love that little bit about it. And it's like, you know, he gets knocked out and he's, you know, and, it, and it's very like, I don't know that it's absolutely the, the art, the artwork doesn't make it absolutely clear other than the fact that you just have to assume that if Davis draws something, it's intentional. Um, but the quote tells you that too. He can inflate his body to match his ego. I love the detail that he inflates his body he has grown his muscles to essentially be in shape and apparently grown his hair because like he has a receding hairline that is not present when he's you know normally in his secret identity so i love that little detail about him and like that was my main final thought my other one is um and again, we're not going to talk about it because it was about Widget and you mentioned it briefly, but I love that Widget yells Sentinels when when mm-hmm. he shows up um, over Kitty's dialogue. That's a nice little detail that will remind me to bring that up again in like, you know, 10 issues. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We're going to be whenever. coming. We're going to be coming back to that. I mean, for mine, I just wanted to, like, as usual, we've done like our critical eye on this comic and everything. But in terms of an issue of, of Excalibur, you know, what a joy this issue was to have all those different tones. You know, we got fight scenes, mm-hmm. we got drama, we got romance, we got sci fi, we got all this stuff going on. We got all these plots seated that are going to carry us through this last run of Alan Davis on Excalibur and then we got the cosmic battles threaded through everything and I really love that thing that he did where he just inserts pages of the cosmic battle between the other things which is jarring but jarring in a productive way I think that makes this world feel so big to me and it just really feels like you know if I paid my you know whatever Excalibur cost 175 for this comic there's just so much in here there's so much in here it's beautifully rendered Alan Davis made the most of those two issues off for how much we suffered we do get the payoff of this beautifully rendered issue and yeah just wanted to say how much i did enjoy reading this issue even though we griped about some of the details a little bit jason final word is yours floor is yours anything that you want to talk about from this issue that we didn't get a chance to talk about i'd like to talk about micromax (laughs) (laughs) go for it if you want to not really not really not really Although I do find it weird that he's yet another Scott with a job at a radio station. <laughs> Who are you counting? Uh, Cyclops. Summers. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Sorry, that's a deep cut. Because I know, yeah, I wasn't sure. Like he felt, he feels very in this one. Micromax feels very Billy Batson to me in his um in his portrayal. But mm. anyway, sorry, okay. Jay. So go ahead. That's okay. That's okay. I, I set up the diversion there. <laughs> uh, my final thoughts are basically really great to have the Phoenix back. Great to have mm-hmm. Alan Davis back after those previous two really weird issues in Wakanda. Um, oof. I'm looking forward to listening to those when I get there. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and this kind of sets up this is in a lot of ways the prologue for alan davis's final kind of arc with the next handful of issues yeah mm-hmm. yeah he's setting up a lot of things here and it is you know i can see the skill for storytelling there the way he is setting up all those different threads and we are going to come back to each of the things that are brought up in this issue and knowing that makes the experience of reading this issue yeah i mean i would have enjoyed reading it not knowing that but knowing that some of the stuff is going to pay off and come back around is is really nice too it's always nice revisiting it everyone's back in uh excalibur is a really fun book (laughs) 
we're very happy to be away from the previous two issues and back in the Davis era, even though I can't believe we're coming to the end of it. Anyway, I wanted to spotlight a quick letter before we go. I am spotlighting a Phoenix letter in honor of today's episode. Um, It is a poem that Dory Rumsauer has submitted concerning Phoenix. Dear Swords Jokes, Phoenix, bird of fire, evolved higher, from the ashes, fire flashes, corruption of the soul, being one but never whole, rage of a fiery sun, two beings turned to one, sacrificed for the sake of all, falling a final fall, not even a spark lies within, and Phoenix will never rise again. But of course... Phoenix does rise again, as Terry Cavanaugh points out, but a little poetry from the Sword Strokes letters column for you this week. Batwing, snake skin. Is this all you've learned, Morgana, to deal in potions and petty evil? And where have your meddling arts brought the world? To the edge of ruin. I'm worn thin and threadbare. I've tried to guide men or meddled in their affairs as you would have it for far too long. The time has come for me to go. So we will wrap things up there, other than to say, Jason, thank you so much from the bottom of our Excalibur-loving hearts for joining us for this episode. We had so much fun. And yeah, before we go, let's remind our lovely listeners of the things that you get up to. If you would like people to find you online, where can they find you? And what writing or podcasts or other projects of yours should they be checking out? Remind them again. Uh, pretty much my entire online presence can be found at triskadecafiles.com. I will give you guys a link to throw in show notes <laughs> yeah, and yeah. on Twitter and everything because I can't seem to pick a, a URL that is easy to spell. Um, <laughs> aside from that, you can find me on Twitter at Phoenix. That's F-O-E-N-I-X. And fun story, the reason why it's an F is... I was writing a book in the early 90s, and I wanted to be different, and I took the F from Farron. Wow. <laughs> wow. I mean, it bad. also makes sense because I, I do not like the character of Farron, but just because he was kind of the kind of the the opposite of Phoenix and set up to be a Phoenix host in some way, it kind of made a connection in my head. I'm like, well, yeah. I don't want to use PH, so I'll grab it from this guy. And also... It became my online identity because even in 1995, everyone and their brother already had grabbed the proper spelling. So I made my own. (laughs) I love that. I love that you've been rocking that all this time. Uh, Anyone wants to read my stuff about really cheesy horror movies? That's on the website. There are links to the uh, podcast I'm working on. I've got a couple irons in the fire that... Yes, I didn't get that phrase right. (laughs) (laughs) It came into my head earlier as fires in the iron, and I'm like, no, that's not... (laughs) I don't really want to say too much in case I don't get around to realizing them for a little while, but I want to do a show... I've spent the last 13 years (laughs) talking about the weird horror movies that I come across, and I kind of want to start a show where it's not just me talking and i want to have other people come on the show and talk about the weird movies they love can be horror 
comedy, rom-com, whatever, that, that movie that everyone loves that when you tell it to someone, they're like, you like that? <laughs> and so that that's my current project. I'm hoping to launch at some point this year. And I've just been looking for a platform to do the recording on. And I think you guys might have introduced me to a really good one right here. <laughs> I'm just like screw up right now just as yeah. <laughs> knock on wood well that sounds awesome I'm like already you're saying that and I'm like oh god what would mine be <laughs> maybe I'm wrong and people don't have the movies like that as much as I oh, do no, I've got several oh there's, yeah there's, oh there's, yeah, yeah there, there, are, there are many yes <laughs> there are many it's a good idea yeah, there, are, there, are, there are many bad bad movies that um that I think you could I, even not necessarily bad like one of my favorite examples is the movie battleship i think that movie is ridiculously fun and gets a lot of hate that it doesn't really deserve yeah that's a good pick i've, I've heard that about that movie like i know supporters of that movie you're not wrong well, i love that and we will definitely look out for that and yeah just thank you so much again yes you're welcome it was a pleasure to be here and i hope i lived up to the expectations you had in your head for me <laughs> definitely Absolutely. Next, in one week's time, we will be discussing Excalibur 62, a birth, death, and the confused, painful bit in between, starring the character find of 1993, Beetroot. We are definitely going to talk <laughs> about Beetroot. In the meantime, if you liked what you heard, please follow us, like, and review the podcast wherever you're listening to it or watching it. Don't forget to check out the fabulous YouTube videos, which we've done for many of our episodes, which you can find via our website or the Box Popcast YouTube channel. As always, if you want to chat with us about Excalibur or pitch yourself as a guest for a future episode, let us know you can reach out via our website goshgollywow.com where we've got some fun extras and via twitter at goshgollywow where we post daily pages from whatever issue we're reading that week and more fun extras thank you andrew and mav for another present journey through the past thank you jason for time traveling with us thank you all for listening and a special thanks to maximilian of thought for music for a truly epic theme song play us out we've reached the end of this much interrupted